Section 12 of Stupor Mundi, The Life and Times of Frederick II by Lionel Alshorn. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 6, The Excommunicate Crusader, Part 2. The Sixth Crusade, or as it is sometimes called, the Second Act of the Fifth Crusade, was an amazing personal triumph. Its success, the work of one man. Frederick's military weakness and the difficulties of his position were known to the infidels, yet by the mere weight of his reputation, by some potent spell which his personality exercised over the impressionable oriental mind, he had induced them peaceably to surrender the sacred city which they had captured and maintained, in spite of all the efforts of Christendom. We may imagine that had he been supported instead of hindered by the Pope, had even the small army at Jaffa unanimously accepted his leadership, he might have gained far greater concessions. It seems probable, wrote Hermann von Salza in covert reproof to the Pope, that if our Lord the Emperor had crossed the sea with the favor and peace of the Church, the business of the Holy Land would have prospered much more. What thanks he might expect from the head of the religion in whose cause he had striven was soon demonstrated. Scarcely had the treaty been signed when a messenger arrived from his kingdom summoning him back with all speed. Gregory had actually declared a crusade against the absent crusader, and the papal armies were invading Apulia, led by Frederick's bitter enemy John de Brienne, the ex-king of Jerusalem. Frederick, however, was determined to visit Jerusalem before returning to his native kingdom. In this desire, he was not actuated solely by the devotional aspirations of a pilgrim. The recovered city was his own possession by virtue of his marriage with Yolande, and he naturally wished to assume in his new capital the crown of his kingdom of Jerusalem. Accompanied by Hermann von Salza and the Teutonic Knights and by many of his Italian subjects, he arrived in the holy city on the 19th of March. Hot on his heels, followed the emissary of the patriarch Gerald, the papal gadfly, who proclaimed anew the sentence of excommunication, and laid the city that harbored the accursed emperor under the interdict. To such a pass had things come, that the very burial place of Christ himself, the church of the holy sepulchre, was pronounced unholy, and all prayer and praise forbidden within its walls. There were many priests and prelates among Frederick's following who would have ignored the papal ban and performed any rites their emperor chose to command, but counsels of moderation prevailed, and since no priest could lawfully crown him, he resolved to crown himself. He proceeded in state to the church of the sepulchre, and there, surrounded by the Teutonic knights, clad in their white surcoats marked with a black cross, he lifted the crown of Jerusalem from the altar and placed it upon his head. Hermann von Salza then spoke in the name of the emperor. It is well known, ran the address in tones of surprising moderation, that at Aix-la-Chapelle I took the cross of my own free will. Hitherto insuperable difficulties have impeded the fulfillment of my vow. I acquit the Pope for his hard judgment of me, and for my excommunication. In no other way could he escape the blasphemy and evil report of men. 
I exculpate him further for his writing against me in Palestine in so hostile a spirit, for men had rumored that I had levied my army not against the Holy Land but against the Papal States. Had the Pope known my real designs, he would not have written against me but in my favor. Did he know how many are acting here to the prejudice of Christianity, he would not pay so much respect to their complaints and representations. I would willingly do all which might expose those real enemies and false friends of Christ to delight in discord, and so put them to shame by the restoration of peace and unity. I will not now think of the high estate which is my lot on earth, but humble myself before God, to whom I owe my elevation, and before him who is my vicar on earth. If such were the sentiments expressed by the emperor in public, his private words and actions, if we may credit the accounts of the Mohammedan chroniclers, were less circumspect. He was said to have asked the Saracens why they had placed gratings over the windows of the holy chapel. To keep out the defilements of the birds, they replied. You may shut out the birds, but how will ye keep out the swine, he answered, referring bitterly to his Christian persecutors. On another occasion he was inspecting the mosque of Omar when he saw a Christian priest enter with the book of the Gospels in his hands. He considered this an affront to the religious convictions of the Mohammedans and threatened to punish the priest for violating the treaty. The house in which the emperor slept adjoined a minaret from which the muezzin was wont to proclaim the hour for prayer and to read certain verses from the Koran. One night he took for his text, How is it possible that God had for his son Jesus the son of Mary? The emir feared this would offend the emperor and silenced the muezzin. The sudden cessation of the cry aroused Frederick's attention as he lay awake, and the next morning he sent for the emir and inquired the reason. You are wrong, he declared to neglect your duty, your law, and your religion on my account. By God, if you should visit me in my realms, you will find no such respectful deference. This spirit of toleration was naturally abhorrent to the fanatical churchmen. There was no time for the emperor to tarry in Jerusalem while the papal armies were overrunning Apulia. He stayed only two days after his coronation, and then, leaving a prefect to govern the city, he returned to Acre. Needless to say, Gerald had forwarded most venomous accounts of his conduct to Rome. The Pope, too, had denounced the treaty as a monstrous reconciliation of Christ and Belial, and by willfully confusing the Temple of Solomon with the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, was endeavoring to persuade Europe that Frederick had left the Holy of Holies in the hands of the infidels. He adjured Albert of Austria, the most powerful prince of the empire, to revolt against his lord, and to join the crusade against the enemy of the church. The emperor's last acts in Palestine are only known to us through the source of his enemies. His patience seems at last to have become exhausted before the continual annoyances to which he was subjected, and his conduct at Acre bears evidence of a very justifiable spleen. The patriarch had attempted to enroll a considerable force in a new order under his own leadership. Frederick absolutely forbade it, and declared that no one should levy armed forces in his dominions without his authority. He then assembled a vast multitude of the crusaders and the populace of Acre, 
with whom he was in high favour on the seashore. He condemned the obstinate and treacherous hostility of Gerald and the Templars in no measured terms, and commanded all the crusaders to leave Palestine, as they had now fulfilled their vows. On his return to the city he seized the gates and would admit none but his own followers. The churches he occupied with his archers. Gerald replied by again proclaiming the sentence of excommunication. It seems that constant recapitulation was necessary to keep it before the popular mind. In return, he was kept a prisoner within his own palace and deprived of luxuries, while the emperor feasted and enjoyed the Terpsichorean antics of his Saracen dancing girls. Two Franciscans who denounced the emperor from the pulpit were soundly flogged. Gerald, in turn, laid the city under an interdict. On the 1st of May, Frederick turned his back on the ungrateful shores of Palestine, and as his galleys left the port, there floated to him over the waters the sound of thanksgiving. Gerald and his followers were raising a te deum for their deliverance from his accursed presence. It was high time for the emperor to return to his kingdom, for the papal armies were sweeping all before them in northern Apulia. Unfortunately, the imperial viceroy, Reynald, Duke of Spoleto, had been the first aggressor. Pursuing some rebels into the march of Ancona, he had allowed zeal to outrun discretion and had trespassed on the papal territories. Frederick afterwards declared that this was entirely unauthorized and that he had punished Reynold for his temerity. But the mischief was done, and the Pope was quick to seize upon the provocation as an excuse for extensive reprisals. He levied large forces and placed them under the warlike legate Pelagius, John de Brienne, and Cardinal John Colonna. A report of Frederick's death in Palestine was industriously circulated in order to dishearten his subjects, and the papal armies marched into Apulia. The war was prosecuted with a ferocity unusual even in southern Italy, and the papal levies vied with Frederick's Saracen soldiery in cruelty. Gregory, meanwhile, endeavored to arouse Europe in the support of his so-called crusade. The frigid unresponsiveness which his legates everywhere encountered was significant of the disapproval of Christendom. Men throughout the Christian world, remarks Milman, could not but doubt by which party the real interests of the Eastern Christians had been most betrayed and injured, and that the Pope should now endeavor to levy tithes for the prosecution of his wars against the absent emperor was sufficient to arouse even the ecclesiastics to opposition. England alone sullenly responded to the papal extortions. Germany stood loyal to her emperor, in spite of the strenuous efforts of Gregory to arouse sedition. The Duke of Bavaria half-heartedly raised the standard of revolt and was quickly crushed by the young King Henry. In Apulia, however, the banner of the Keys was making rapid headway, and the northern districts groaned under the devastations wrought by Gregory's generals. Suddenly the news ran round that the emperor had returned, and the aspect of the war changed as if by a miracle. He landed near Brindisi on the 10th of June and immediately sent an ambassador to the Pope. His overtures were scornfully rejected, and again the sentence of excommunication was repeated. Meanwhile, the loyal populace was flocking to his support, and he soon had a formidable force under his command, 
among which were several of the brave Germans who had followed him to Jerusalem. As soon as he learnt that Gregory had refused his offers of reconciliation, he advanced against the invaders. Everywhere he was welcomed as a deliverer, and his enemies were confounded. Town after town was regained, and the papal forces broke up in confusion and fled before him. Gregory now began to yearn for the blessings of peace. In November he sent Hermann von Salza back to the emperor with the message that he wished the war to end, and that a treaty should be made to put an end to this fruitless shedding of Christian blood. Frederick disbanded his army and kept Christmas with high festival in the city of Capua. Many of the princes of the empire joined him, anxious to witness the consummation of the peace. Finally, in the July of 1230, the treaty was concluded at San Germano. Frederick was absolved from the excommunication which had harassed him for nearly three years. In return, he made considerable concessions. He granted a complete amnesty to all his subjects who had rebelled against him during his excommunication and restored to them their lands and benefices. He undertook to relinquish all the papal territories he had occupied and all the estates which he had seized from churches, monasteries, the orders of the Templars and Hospitallers, and all other allies of the Church. He renounced the right of judging ecclesiastics in the civil courts, except in cases which concerned the royal fiefs. Lastly, he actually agreed to levy no more taxes on ecclesiastical property throughout his realm. We cannot but wonder why Frederick, whose star was undoubtedly in the ascendant at the close of hostilities, should have conceded so much. He appears in the treaty as the conquered rather than the conqueror. No doubt he was very weary of the burden of the church's curse, and anxious for a period of peace in which to govern his realms undisturbed by continued conflict, and for this he was willing to surrender much. Moreover, if he seems to humble himself, the Pope also, by omitting all mention of Frederick's offences in the matter of the crusade, by preserving a significant silence with regard to the treaty with the infidels which originally he had denounced as impious and monstrous, had tacitly recognized the injustice of his fulminations against the crusader. On the 1st of September the reconciliation was sealed by the meeting of the two former adversaries. The emperor visited the pope at his residence at Anagni and exchanged the kiss of peace. So ended one more scene in the great medieval drama of the empire and the papacy. End of section 12